Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Beyond Sleep Training Podcast a podcast dedicated to sharing real tales of how people have managed sleep in their family outside of sleep training culture. Because sleep looks different with a baby in the house. And because every family is different, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to take. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Kalkadoon people. I pay my respects to the elders of this nation and the many other nations our guests reside in from the past, present and emerging. We honour Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the unique cultural and spiritual relationships to the land, water and seas, as well as their rich contributions to society, including the birthing and nurturing of children. Welcome back to the Beyond Sleep Training Podcast. This week, we're welcoming back the wonderful Leah Deshay. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, we heard part one of Leah's story and how her family or how she came to be handling sleep in her family. And this week, we're looking forward to hearing how that looked when she actually welcomed her own babes to the fold. So welcome back, Leah. Thank you so much. Excited to be here again. So tell me, when we finished the last episode, we were just getting to the part when you were welcoming your first babe, who you said is now 10 years old. Is that right? She's almost 10. She's going to be 10 very soon. Yep. So while you were pregnant with her, did you have an idea of how you wanted to approach sleep with your family? Um, I'm not sure that my idea was conscious. Um, and if, if anybody's listened to the previous episode, uh, we're talking about defaults, which is just like not even really having an awareness of how much, um, the customs that you grew up with are affecting your expectations and your subconscious behavior. Right. So I think for me, there was no conscious, and this is so, this is an extremely common phenomenon. So it's good for everybody to think about. There was no conscious, like, me sitting down and looking at anything that had happened in my childhood or anything that I was accustomed to and conceptualizing like, Oh, this is how I was raised. I should see what other people have done with their children for sleep. Like that process absolutely did not happen (laughs) during my first pregnancy. (laughs) And I think it's normal that it doesn't happen for most. I think people come into it with assumptions, not even necessarily processing that they are assumptions. You know what I mean? And so I was very, very stereotypical in that sense. Like I was no different than most of the patients I would ever see like in the future with my first baby. So no, there was nothing conscious that happened. So were you thinking, so you were planning to breastfeed and co-sleep with her? I was because that, that was the norm in my family. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. And so when she came along, how did you find that immediate postpartum? 
So this is where things I think get really fascinating. And I hope this speaks to um, some people because it's a, it was so unexpected uh, for everyone involved. So I actually had a really extraordinarily difficult time co-sleeping and it was heartbreaking for me because in my family that was like a marker of being a good mother it's how things were done kind of it's like how my things were done sleeping correct and so this isn't this isn't a statement on what is right or what is not right because especially now as a provider what is right is is what whatever situation is safe and fulfilling that accomplishes and meets the developmental and, you know, social emotional needs of the baby. And then the provider for me is what's right. Right. And so I can always advise. Yeah. It has to work because if you can't do it, it won't work. Like sustainability for a day. Absolutely. And so of course, if it's harmful, you know, I'm, I'm just to be extremely straightforward. I am, I don't, I do not work with families who are practicing cry it out. I don't shame them. You know, I release them. They have to work with someone else, (laughs) but that's a boundary for me because that there is in the risk benefit ratio arena, there is only harm on a research level. So I have a responsibility as a clinician and a provider to be extremely upfront about that. And it doesn't mean that I think that I, I understand why people resort to it truly. I'm like, when we get into, I really do. (laughs) I had, I have my, my child who was autistic, um, had extraordinary colic. I truly understand the amount of exhaustion and exacerbation that a parent gets to where they are so desperate for sleep and relief that you're kind of like, dude, kid, if I don't get any more sleep, neither one of us is going to survive. So if you, if you're going to lay no, truly like, and and this is just me being empathic. Like I understand where you're like, I'm just going to have to put you down on this crib and you're going to have to cry because if I don't go to sleep, I'm going to die on the road to work tomorrow. And then you won't have a parent. So, you know, a lot of parents are just doing that calculation inside their mind. Those, those families I absolutely will work with because I know how to do risk reduction for them it's families who have a night nurse and a doula and a mom in the house and all of the rest of that and they still choose to do cry it out i'm not their doula you know (laughs) that's not i'm not for you (laughs) you've got other influences that are apparently really strong that are priorities in your life and while i'm not going to judge you like i'm also the not i'm not the right person to support you you know what i mean you have to be part of it Correct. um people who are desperate and and they are resorting to cry it out out of a sense of just inability to find any other option and, and truly going days without sleep and all the rest of that. I, I am their doula. I absolutely can help you. Right. Um, and so my experiences reflect, um, being really disoriented and, and coming face to face with feeling like I didn't measure up like to my mother and my aunts, um, and my grandmothers. So I had Demir, which is a uh, dys- oh, yeah. dysphoric All milk right. ejection reflex. Yep. And then I had aversion <laughs> once right. the kids got teeth. Yeah. I got all the things uh, <laughs> yeah. and it was so heartbreaking for me because those things that was not, no one in my family knew about that. 
So when I went to what I thought were going to be my support systems to seek help, they were all sort of like, oh God, what's wrong with you? Like you should see a doctor about that. Yeah. That's so it is. And my, and this is not a remark against my mother. Like no, nobody no. berated me. You know what I mean? Like this is not, yeah, and that does happen. No. Correct. Yeah. It fell outside their range of reference. Absolutely. And there, I, I gained an immediate sense of exclusion. Um, it was extremely jarring for me from an identity standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, um, so my experience, what was disorienting to be honest, because I planned to do these things. And, you know, at that point that was in 2010 and when I got pregnant, 2011, end of 2010, <clears throat> she was born in 2011. And so at that point, all of these things were just sort of like starting to come into trend that you were even discussing them. Right. And they were at the time they were fed as best was not really out yet. And so breast is best was still a thing that people were saying and, It was like, should you, is it safe to sleep with? And like, is it extreme or is it better? That's when all of the, um, sort of the conversations were happening about 10, 11 years ago. Um, and I was just heartbroken. I really felt like something was wrong with me mentally, physically, and emotionally. Um, I have... Did you find some support, like obviously outside of family, but was there anyone? You know, it took years. It wasn't until she was in preschool that I was able to find social support. And so a huge part of my secondary wave in my career has been creating space for support and being um, an assertive, sometimes aggressive advocate against the shaming that happens among my colleagues in the community for women who deal with this. Um, I really have no tolerance <laughs> for my colleagues. Fair enough too. Do you, like, because how it's not helping. What are you helping? That's what right. are you helping? And what's the plan? Like what, right. what about, what about these people? Right. Where's the support there? Correct. It's different if you say this is out of my, my scope and this is out of my comfort level as a provider. I respect that. But a lot of the, in, Amongst the IBCLC and dual circles, there there's a lot of Madonna complex collectively <laughs> going on with them, where being being an acceptable woman is still limited to your ability to materialize all of these idealistic stereotypical things about femininity, right? And so I I it led me to be um, way more assertive in, in being a feminist and, and just really lean into advocacy. I mentioned that I was doing, um, STD and and breastfeeding research. And so Mm -hmm. I was already in arenas where I was dealing with people who were parents, but also were, um, their lives involve a lot of taboo issues that other people don't want to talk about sex work, um, LGBTQ uh, communities, which now like is more normalized, but 10 or 15 years ago, it still was not <laughs> like when we were in college, it still wasn't like, it was normalized in the sense of that we all knew it existed, but there, there wasn't a lot of integration, certainly not in care. Um, so I sort of already had a primer of like being there for the underdog and, and identifying with that dynamic, if that makes sense. But I think going through the experience of thinking that, Oh, like this is all just going to come naturally to me. Right. Because because it is natural to me. Right. Like hypothetically in my mind, and then finding out that your, your mind and your body are together, but they are not 
one and the same. And I think a huge part of becoming a mother is navigating that. And it can be so jarring for some of us, right? When it, when, when everything doesn't line up. Well, it's so, kind of the control side of things, isn't it? It like is. Kind of just the opinion that if you just work at something or you decide this is right. how it's going to be, you can make it so. Correct. It's just not like that when you it have It is faith. not. It's not like that at all. So tell us when, so obviously you had a rough time breastfeeding. Did you actually? I actually, so I had, and this is, we know now in research, you know, we don't know which is coming first, the chicken or the egg and, and, um, uh, causation, correlation is not causation, but there isn't a correlation between, um, extremely high supply and demir and that's again different podcasts for like biology and to talk about the dopamine upcycle and all the rest of that why that might be the case so i had on the that was another thing that was that was alienating because on the outside like i i pumped extremely easily like i expressed easily i just had so much milk everywhere and so everyone it didn't leave me a lot of space to find support because what everybody was seeing was, Oh, you have a great big fat baby, you know, <laughs> like yeah. breastfeeding must be going great. Oh, wow. You have a freezer full of milk. And I was like, yes. And I am miserable because right now I'm at the behest of my breasts, right? <laughs> I have no control over this. This isn't about what I want to be doing. Like I, 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 and I got into that runaway train of like, my breasts are always full and I'm extremely uncomfortable and I have demir. So every time I have a letdown, I feel miserable and it's happening all the time. So I've got to empty my boobs and please, I have to feed this baby more, but God, I hate feeding this baby. Like it really can get you into a terrible place. And unless you've had the experience, um, it's kind of, you know, even when you have the experience, it's not easy to understand because it's not a logical experience. <laughs> like yeah, it's not an experience that makes sense. Right. <laughs> but it is how it is. Like that, yeah. that was how it felt and it was how you experienced it. So do you think that played into, uh, how did like the, your relationship with babe look then? Like if you're finding this so damn like frustrating and, and um, miserable, how was, how are you feeling with babe? I think my saving grace that allowed me to cope in a way that did not affect her negatively. And I feel like because, you know, she's a decade old, I can say that with some confidence. <laughs> she, you know, she still has the rest of her life ahead of her. Maybe she'll end up on the couch in 10 years about like breastfeeding nightmares or something like that. But right now <laughs> she seems to be she's doing right now. Right. She seems to be a really well-adjusted, incredibly bright, really cool kid. <laughs> so I think she's okay. Um, be the one saving grace of my default culture having been very child centered was that I was able to separate what the war that I felt was going on with my body from my relationship with my child. And that's not something I, I am taking credit for. I want to be really clear because I did, I definitely ended up with depression with maternal depression specifically, because, because why wouldn't I, I was exhausted. I was such a light sleeper that every time she like breathed differently, I was awake, wide awake, um, which I later learned was anxiety. So it ended up by my co-sleeping issues ended up being from anxiety that had been undiagnosed for years. And I had no idea about, but they flared up so high that I got OCD symptoms. And every, so I just had like <laughs> overlapping things. And you know, the less you sleep is the worse anything becomes. So even if you don't have mental health issues, you're gonna, Spiles. if you're not sleeping for a long Swings time. Right. Yeah. So 
by the time she was about seven months old, um, I knew I needed help and I was trying to go back to work. And that's when it really, I actually got into a car accident the second day I went back to work because I was so exhausted. And my eyes were wide open, but I was not awake. Like I literally, I woke up when I felt the impact, even though my eyes were open because I I was almost, I would describe the experience now as hallucinating, not in the way that happens when you're in drugs, but, but in, in what your brain does when you're that fatigued for that long. Right. From reality. Yeah. Mm. And the remarkable thing was even when she was in care and when she was babysat, then I couldn't even get to sleep. So when I tried to co-sleep, I could sleep. I was just constantly waking. Um, but when she was not there and someone else was taking care of her, I couldn't sleep at all. And that was sort of the trigger, like, ding, this isn't actually about the co-sleeping or the baby or the breastfeeding. There's something else going on inside your head for which all of this is a trigger. And it just ended up being anxiety. So my takeaway from that is that we, when I, in the previous episode, when I talk about giving ourselves space, like as women, I I think we, there's such a lack of support and sometimes just a spirit of just pushing things aside, you know, as women, as we're getting older and that's okay. Like we don't need to blame ourselves for that. Society is what it is. Our cultures are what they are. And, you know, you can't blame yourself for, for being a product of however you grew up, but don't ignore like your own pain. You know what I mean? Like at some point during the process, there's so much pressure during the new period, um, uh, to, to adjust that you can't even escape. That's necessary to take care of your kid. That if there are things in your life that have always been things that you need to support over and, and you've told yourself, Oh, it's not a big deal. Or, you know, like, I don't really want to bother people with that. Or this is just me. You know, all of the things that we tell ourselves, like push things inside into the back of your mind. Don't be surprised if it comes to the front. And when it does, like get some help. Absolutely. So I found I would, help with the therapist. That's I was about <laughs> to ask you that. I was I like, who did, help. Yes. who did you see? And so how old was baby when you actually were able to get you some help? About seven to eight months. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be a really common trend, hey? Like I, yes. I was in the six to seven month that it took me to break before I did that. But um, yeah. yeah, it seems to be really common. Like you just, it's like you think you're going to outrun that newborn period. Correct. And then you kind of stretch it a bit further. And then when it's still not okay, it's like, hang on a sec. Right. And it's okay. Like it it would be so brilliant if people were able to get that support they needed much earlier before you hit that full blown brain. Because it really, it's hard to come back from, isn't it? Because you're still mothering. You've still got this kid who needs you. You're always working against a deficit. You end up working against a deficit for years. Yeah. It's very hard to come back. And I feel like, did you find then with your second, third and fourth babe that you were able to address that before it became such a heavy deficit or did you find that it was still a challenge? No. So that's a, that's a wonderful reflection also. So I got help. I had a wonderful therapist. It is important to note though, in me saying that I have, and so I, I'm separating these two things for a reason. I think, um, 
I fully believe that mental health issues are, are medical clinical issues. I am, um, you know, there are communities that really have a reticence against medication. And on a social standpoint and from an intersectional standpoint, I understand where a lot of those things come from. However, big however, I, I don't indulge like demonizing people seeking pharmacological treatment. You know what I mean? Like whatever, whatever is safe and available to you is what you should use to find balance for yourself. Um, and especially for some people that can be the difference between able to have success in therapy or not. Absolutely. Definitely. You know, that can, it can provide that, that space you need yes. to be able to actually get properly well. My, right. my thing would be as someone who's been through that kind of challenge as well would be that I wouldn't rely only on medication. Correct. Like if that were the only thing you're doing, it's probably not going to be you getting no. really well. No, um, but you will, yeah. you will form a dependency, but you won't, you won't have any sort of, um, solutions that, that give you progress. So you just stay static, and right? Like, and yeah, you'll get into a holding underlying. pattern, but you won't yeah. undo whatever is causing the issue. I completely agree. Um, so pharmacological actually did not end up working for me, which was sort of upsetting at first, but I, I had a wonderful therapist. And so I was able to go through like cognitive behavioral therapy and it was really, really helpful for me with that in mind. And so trigger warning for anybody who's coming up. Um, I, I ended up having to face and deal with some traumatic things that had happened to me outside of my family that involved abuse. And I realized that I had been in a marriage that was abusive. I'm leaving space to think about that also, because like the way I said it was on purpose, I realized that that marriage that I was in was abusive. The statements where we just talked about where it was a very short marriage. Um, he was a police officer. There's a lot of things going on <laughs> also for another podcast, <laughs> but because I had never even told my parents some of the things that had happened to me, um, not, not within my own household. Right. And so because of shame and because of just lack of awareness and whatever else, there are things that I had never faced. So it all came to a peak when I had a child because I was exhausted, right? Like I was also feeding into that and I wasn't in a healthy situation, but I couldn't recognize so many of the things that were happening to me. I was continuing to internalize, um, uh, blame for them in myself and going to therapy. My therapist was like, I'm sorry, what happened with your husband? <laughs> you know? It's like, you're not like, taking that on. Like, <laughs> right. That's not you. No. She was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's back up. And so it really helped me unpack so many things that had gone on in my life. Um, also why I'm divorced, obviously, <laughs> thankfully, everybody does not leave their abusive relationships. And that's also a different conversation. And there's no abuse is such a really bizarre, dark dynamic, you know, on both sides for both people who are going through it. Um, so no shame or judgment for other folks, but I have seen in the last 10 years as a provider, so many women who also had aha moments of like, oh my goodness, I'm experiencing emotional abuse because they hear someone else talking about it. And then they hear it, name it that way. And they're like, oh, it's not just my husband, like being a prick and making me feel terrible. I'm like there, this is a name. It is a thing. It has like, <laughs> it's been wow. realizations in the community. The yeah. Me Too movement's made a massive shift in the way people Absolutely. are thinking. 
So I separate those two things because number one, you can be depressed and have anxiety and have OCD and be in a really extremely loving partnership. You can. And so I intentionally didn't include that in me talking about it at first because I wanted people to know that like, it's complicated, you know, like sometimes both present at the same time. Sometimes people are in abusive relationships and they really, really lean into their mothering and their mothering is like their, their outlet where they do great. And then at work is where they're experiencing extreme, you know, disruption. It just, it's so, it can be really different for everyone. It's, it's such a difficult transition, but if there is anything latent that you have not had support for, like get support for it. This is 100% my takeaway point for that. Um, So in that relationship, I, the only way that I was able to resolve what was going on was by leaving. And that I, I, it's not for lack of trying. Like I tried everything available to me, but as you also learn when you're parenting, like you can't make anybody do anything, least of all your partner. And so I did everything I could do and he was extremely unwilling to participate in any progress that's putting it lightly, if not, you know, directly aggressively opposing me at all times. So the only way for me to level my mental health and make sure that it wasn't affecting my child in a way that I thought her development was, was really going to be threatened was for me to put a boundary on that relationship. Um, again, I had a lot of, my family's wonderful and they helped me with that. Everybody doesn't have that. And I know that, and that's terrible. And that's also like for a different conversation, but surely find someone, you know, like a therapist, there are organizations, there is support available, even if it's not from the people who really should be giving it to you, you still should be able to find it. Um, Absolutely. And it's, it's kind of, even if you're having little niggling thoughts of, oh, Maybe I'll just give it a bit more time. That probably is a sure sign you should be seeking support now. Absolutely. 100%. And that doesn't mean you can't give it more time, but give it more time while you have support. Absolutely. 100%. Agree. It makes (laughs) Um, a massive difference. Yes. So when I, when I went into, you know, there was a gap, obviously of almost five years before I had my next kid. Um, I got remarried to a man who I had known before my ex-husband, you know, and we had been really good friends the entire time. Um, he also was co-parenting, which for me, it wasn't necessarily like a need, but it ended up being so helpful because the capacity for someone else to, to understand and not judge and not question or, or necessarily be frustrated with dynamics that were part of my life. Um, hopefully less part of my life now also would, you know, how that happens in the U S is we, the U S does not take domestic violence seriously, which is extraordinarily terrible. But for people who are listening outside of the United States, if you're like, why did you have any co-parenting? Yes. Different conversation. The U S yeah, is a crazy it's, place. Uh, <laughs> Australia is like trying to make grounds, but it's pretty disgraceful. I've seen, I've been watching the pages and we definitely can't get into it right now, but my no. goodness. Yeah. There's lots, wow. lots of room for improvement. Let's say definitely I've seen Um, so when I, the next choices that I made, you know, I was in therapy the entire time, uh, which is definitely a privilege everyone doesn't have. Um, and as an advocate now, I, I have channels. I'm connected enough that if people reach out to me and they're really serious and they want a therapist, you know, and they have a lot of barriers, then I am happy to like connect people. So I want to put that out there. I feel like that's a responsibility of mine. 
I had therapy. Um, my, my husband currently, um, had therapy also because I was like, I'm not marrying another man who hasn't gone through therapy. I don't care if you don't think anything's wrong with you. <laughs> like you have to go. <laughs> it's a requirement, buddy. It's Absolutely. A requirement. It's a prereq. So please finish it. <laughs> um, and he was fine with that, but we, we discussed all of these things and, you know, he, he has a daughter who's nine and, um, and they're friends. It's actually one of the reasons why we're together is because when they were like one and a half, they started some of their first full sentences were asking to play with the other. We were in a, a close social group. And so we ended up getting really close after our children got close, which is, you know, kind of cute and whatever. <laughs> like you but, were meant um, to be, hey? Yeah. Across again. <laughs> Love that. So, he also came from a background where co-sleep was the norm and breastfeeding was the norm. But now I was able to reflect to him, like, I love this norm and it's a wonderful ideal, but I struggled with it. I need a partner who is willing to do these things, knowing that it, it does not serve me like medically or mentally. Like I can't fulfill this need for my kids, but I still want it fulfilled. And I, when I've talked about this at conferences, you know, and roundtables, it has really been a huge aha moment for partners of any gender, because sometimes you're dealing with things in a marriage and it's really just a lack of understanding of, of different needs in the partner. Like just because both parents can't fulfill a need doesn't mean the child can't get their needs fulfilled. It's so team effort. if it can be, it, a team effort, it can be one. That is absolutely so I was just in charge of all of the feeding, whether it was breastfeeding or pumping or whatever was happening. Most of the time it was breastfeeding, but we came up with a system where I would breastfeed the baby. And because I was still awake, cause I cannot sleep with my kids next to me, I would then give the baby to him when the baby was drowsy and I'm asleep and he co-slept with the kids and I got a full night's sleep. And he ironically started sleeping better when he was co-sleeping. <laughs> it's a thing. It, it seems right? to really be like it either really has that impact on you or not. I, right. like, definitely for me, like, wow. Although I did have the anxiety issues, but I found my second and third baby because I did it from the very beginning. Absolutely. Like and right. I'm, a, I'm a, I have very high sleep needs. Like, I'm way on the high average of adult. And that was, um, sounds like we're pretty similar, your husband and I, for that part. Yes. So, well, the, the good news close. is also, you know, by my fourth child, I was able to co-sleep. And the oh. first time I fell asleep and woke up, I say this because I feel like people need to hear this progress. Basically, my anxiety over the years, over the last seven or eight years that I've been together with my husband and, and just in the course of probably just a lot of healing of everything yeah. that happened to me, you know, including my, my relationship with my ex and, and anything that precluded that, that had not necessarily, um, been resolved or even confronted, um, in that process. And I think just having a partner that was willing to work with me without judgment and, you know, was flexible and, you know, let's, let's just try all of the options that we can do that meet our needs and the baby's needs that removed so much anxiety from me also. And you knew he had your back. Like, yes. What was the, what was the harm in trying different things when you knew right. he had your back? If it doesn't work and we won't do it anymore, you know, and it doesn't, there doesn't need to be great aggravation or anything about it. Like let, let's just find our happy medium. Um, but yeah, by the time, actually by the time my, my son was born. So by the time my third child was born, um, it was so emotional for me. I, he, <laughs> 
my husband said he, he shed a few tears when it happened. I was basically breastfeeding my son. He was like six weeks old. Um, and I fell asleep and my husband said he came in the room and he was like, Oh, <laughs> because that wasn't my norm and it didn't happen. And so he said, he just got in the bed, like he repositioned us, made sure, you know, the bedding and everything was safe. Yeah. And he made a comment to me and I sort of heard him said, Magnus is still here. Are you okay? And I like pushed him off. He said, I was like, stop touching me. Like I'm asleep. <laughs> like, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I woke up the next morning and I had slept for six hours with my son next to me. He was a very, very fat, well-fed baby at this point. Like he tripled his weight by the time he was eight weeks old. So he had no, what I'm about to say is not normal. And like, don't make any judgments off of it, but he, the baby slept but too. And he so did. he, yeah. 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 So he had no needs. He had no, no dietary needs for those six hours. So we both slept six straight hours and I just bawled when I woke up. I was like, wow, did I just like co-sleep? Wow. I didn't know that was going to be able to happen. Then we sort of like started arguing over co-sleeping because he had started sleeping really well with the kids. And I was like, nope, no, thanks. I finally got this. Like, go away. My turn, mate. Oh, I love it. That's a beautiful story. So and it's- that's our long-term story. And we, you know, now, now we just gauge it over who, what's our work schedules. You know, whoever, whoever is working the earliest in the morning is the one that gets the, the primary, primary self-sleep <laughs> as a parent. And whoever isn't is the one who puts the kids to bed. Our kids now all basically sleep on their own. I mean, obviously they wake up, there's sleep disruptions. And so we just alternate who's on for the night and it just depends on our schedule. So if one of the kids wakes up and they can't sleep, then whatever parent is on that night is the one either who's, you know, going to co-sleep or put them back to sleep or whatever is happening. Um, and can Amazing. I just say it happens when your kids are still 10, like they're going to go through puberty yeah. again and their entire sleep cycle is going to change. So don't think <laughs> my 10 year old was the best sleeper. She was like the rock sleeper. And now she's the one who's most likely to be like, I can't sleep for various reasons in the middle of the night. <laughs> it is a thing though, as they get bigger, hey, like the you know nightmares or yep. worried about something at school yep. that they didn't get out before bedtime. You know, there's heaps of little things that come along. Um, mm-hmm. but I guess that's the thing. Like I I don't know about you, but I still like, I, like I said, I sleep a lot, but I still wake in the night to go have a wee or of have course. Like, or to I'm be 39. thirsty. It's ridiculous so. that we don't, that we think that children shouldn't be able to do that. And you know, most people, when you, pre, when you ask them, you don't even have to like berate them or anything. You just ask them. So how many times did you get up last night after you went to sleep? And most just, people and it, will go ding and it sort of yeah. them. <laughs> and it takes such a weight off waiting for that whole sleep through the night milestone. It's Absolutely. Like, I don't even like, it's not even a thing. Like it, it may never happen. And you know what? We'll all be okay. Like that's right. not the thing I'll be waiting for. That is brilliant. I just, I just love that the actual transformation too of having a partner who is fully there for you and your family and being able to recognize where the other parents at and be able to show that kind of flexibility with each other. And it's just that real trust and faith in the relationship that makes such a huge difference for you guys. Huge difference. Yeah. Absolutely. Now I'm just looking at time and I can't believe it. We're already up for another episode. <laughs> I feel like we have at least another episode, if not two in it. Yes, I know definitely. That, but before you finish up, would you have one more tip for us that we could share with our listeners? Um, this tip is actually um, 
for the non-birthing partners. And that is that, um, this is not anecdotal, although the anecdotes, you know, in my practice certainly support it. From a research standpoint, the long-term success and ability for us to predict how prevalent depression will be in the birthing parent is greatly influenced by the rate of engagement of the partner. And I don't say that in a blaming way. I'm sure some people hear it that way. I'm saying it... There's so many men, especially who, once the baby is born, feel like they have no power over those first two years. You know what I mean? There's a huge sense. I constantly hear like feelings of helplessness, of not knowing what to do, feeling like you don't know how to make a positive impact. Partners make an enormous impact and it's, it's a cascading impact because you're impacting, you know, your your partner who's just given birth, who needs to recover and God knows how many other things, depending on what commitments they have in their life. Right. And come into their own, whatever decisions they're making, whether you're pumping, you know, bottle feeding, breastfeeding, whatever you're doing. Um, none of those things will be pleasant for anyone unless there is an equal level of, of compassion and empathy and engagement from the partner and partners have 100% control over that, you know? They do. I, I, do you reckon, like, is there a term you might know? Is patrescence a thing, like a term? That's used? It is a new thing that I've heard people, like, Because using I'm just it. thinking about it. But because yes. I know when I was in matrescence, I really struggled with my husband's finding his feet because Absolutely. I had no freaking clue where I was, let alone right. being able to help him sort out his shit. And so it was a really, <laughs> really messy time in our relationship. Whereas I know, yeah, whereas I found second and third baby, and it sounds like maybe this is why you and your second husband also had some luck because you'd already kind of been there and started right. your matrescence and he'd started patrescence. Yes. That there was this actual recognition that, hang on a sec, or I can, you can find your roles, but you had already started to find yourself to know what would feel right for you. Do you think that? Yes, that that made a huge difference. And it's a privilege everyone doesn't have. But I don't know if privilege is the right. That's not the right yeah, way to describe hard, it because it came it? out of divorce. Like, <laughs> so. yes. But it's also that whole like, isn't it like it's rough that you have to be kind of lucky to yes. be in that kind of relationship? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but actually in reality, if we are honest, it is absolutely lucky, right? It is. Now, unfortunately, relatively those. speaking, it is, it should not be at all. It should be the default, but statistically and realistically and, and yeah. relatively but speaking and absolutely. talking practically, like there yeah. is a lot of work to be done in this space. But I guess once again, that comes back to our talk, like when we were talking last episode where it's giving yourselves time and space to also grow and learn as well, especially if you are actually in a worthwhile relationship. I'm not talking Correct. about relationships that are toxic and unhealthy, right. but in a worthwhile relationship, like my husband and I, we were in a really healthy relationship, but wow. And you can we, still be complete um, hell. It'll be some it of the really worst was. hell your relationship goes through. <laughs> we, we were so poles apart for so long because we were so, well, me particularly went so inwards. There was nothing left. So I think that's really important, like you say, and I think for people listening along, especially if you're still in the thick of your early days parenting, um, go easy with each other, but do understand that you will make an amazing team um, eventually. Give yourself some time to find your feet and find what feels right for both of you. Play your strengths. 
So that's plan that your strengths and, and just lean, lean into compassion when all else fails. I, I feel like among the, the attachment parenting community, I, I joke, but perhaps this isn't a joke, like as a reproductive sociologist now who I no longer only counsel, I very rarely only counsel one partner. I do collective counseling. And that's why I call my practice family doula, because I found that the only way that long-term progress takes hold is when I am supporting both people who are responsible for taking care of that child for this exact reason. And so it helps get people on the same page. 100%. Yeah. And the things we bring to parenthood, it can be poles apart and you don't know what you don't know before you have that baby. That's you have right. no idea what your points of difference are going to be. Right. So I try to insert, I insert in the interactions, compassion and, and practicality and some rationality of the need is there. Um, because I'm modeling. Do you know what I mean? And like, it's very intentional. You, you model that behavior and sometimes you'll be with the partner and they'll tell me later, like, I've never seen them soften on this subject until you interacted with them. And then I realized like, they just want to be understood. Like they're not necessarily trying to oppose me, but they feel judged, you know, or they, they feel exiled or whatever else is happening. Not and so, right. When we look at what we, what we, as advocates are suggesting that we practice an attachment parenting like we sort of need to practice attachment partnering like and it's not gonna come naturally to you I think that's the most important part like it's not gonna feel natural you're gonna have to look at this person in your mind in your brain during conversations where you want to be like what the hell is the matter with you like that's what you want to come out of your mouth and sometimes maybe that still will like in certain conversations it still might but it needs to be followed up with the concept of curiosity, like come from a place of wanting to understand truly, maybe something is wrong with them, like physically or otherwise, but don't come from a place of criticism, come from a place of, I desire to understand, you know, what the challenges are between us so that I can fix them because that's how you approach your kids. And so this is not infantilization. This is not looking at your children and being like, they're smaller than me. They're so cute. This is, once we learn to respect children as individual adults from us, it makes more sense what I'm saying and, and practicing mutual compassion across all the yeah. relationships in your household. Do you know what I mean? I was about to say compassion. That's what we're yes. going for there, isn't it? Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really powerful stuff. I'm so glad you brought the partners into that. Now we're all out of time for this episode, but I feel like we're going to have to get you back again. Do you think you might have another <laughs> episode with us later on? Leah? Yes, not today, we can not do Sunday. it. Not today. Not today. Yeah. Later on. It's, definitely. Yes. It's been an absolute <laughs> delight listening and just such wise words but also I love the reality of it you can you can feel the warmth and the compassion that went into your story for yourself and all members of your family so thank you so much for that it was wonderful all right so thank you so much and um I'll drop all of your information into show notes for people if they're looking out for the family Dulala so that we can keep these conversations going remember please do share it around and comment and mention as much as you can because as leah said in our first episode these kind of conversations are not algorithm friendly necessarily Mm -hmm. so the organic growth (laughs) and stretch is not really there so let's play our part um, because these conversations are so important to families around the world so thank you for coming on leah it's been a pleasure absolutely look forward to doing it again i really hope you enjoyed the podcast today The information we discussed was just that, information only. It is not specific advice. 
If you take any action following something you've heard from our show today, it is important to make sure you get professional advice about your unique situation before you proceed. Whether that advice be legal, financial, accounting, medical, or any other advice. Please reach out to me if you do have any questions or if there's a topic you'd really like us to be covering. And if you know somebody who'd really benefit from listening to our podcast, please be sure to pass our name along. Also check out our free peer support group, the Beyond Sleep Training Project and our wonderful website, www.littlesparklers.org. If you'd like even more from the show, you can join us as a patron on Patreon and you can find a link for that in our show notes. If listening is not really your jam, we also make sure we put full episode transcripts on our Little Sparklers website for you to also enjoy and fully captioned YouTube videos as well on our Little Sparklers channel. So thanks again for listening today. We really enjoy bringing this podcast to you. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.